Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap. I got into the movie making business by being a real estate entrepreneur, but also because I'm a big movie fan. I get a huge kick out of watching blockbuster movies that I watch being made at Black Hall. COVID-19 has put a temporary crimp in production, hasn't it for everybody? But some amazing movies will be shooting at our studio soon and I'll have some amazing folks on the podcast. I'm also into ethics and philosophy and I think you'll see those themes throughout the podcast. So you're wondering, where exactly does the movie business and philosophy come together? That's the journey I want to take you on on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'll bring you guests from both worlds, and I think you'll be surprised at how much philosophy goes into the world of making movies. Plus, you'll get an inside look at the new Hollywood of the South right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Give a listen. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. I'm happy to have you along for the ride on the Black Hall Studios podcast. This week on the podcast, I talk with Chet Cooper, publisher and founder of Ability Magazine and founder of the Ability Corps Foundation. Working hard to create a new and enlightened vernacular, posture, and cultural understanding of people with disabilities, Cooper has worked for over 30 years as an advocate and expert in this arena, continually crossing paths with presidents, corporate titans, philanthropic influencers, and curious journalists Cooper is a natural disruptor who has tirelessly fought to educate, inspire, and motivate corporate America to hire and integrate their workforces with the highly capable and very often overlooked population of disabled people. Reminding me in this conversation that anyone could face having a disability at any time, Chet Cooper is a sharp, effective advocate for change in America. I enjoyed my conversation with Chet Cooper, and I think you'll enjoy it too. Hi, welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap, Chairman and CEO of Black Hall Studios. Today we are fortunate to have Chet Cooper, publisher of Ability Magazine and co-founder of the Ability Core Foundation. Chet, welcome to the program. Hello, welcome uh, to my world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to have you on the program today. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in uh, the kind of work that you do with uh, people with special needs? Uh, people with disabilities? Um, I, gosh, it's been, uh, what time do you have enough right now when you're watching? I've got four o'clock. Yeah, it's been 30 years. Um, <laughs> so I walked right into that one. <laughs> um, I'll try to make it a short story. There's a lot to it, but um, there's an article written in Newsweek uh, back in, about 1990, talking about the need for increasing employment of people with disabilities. And they were um, talking about the ready, willing, and able concept of, of this. And I had, in the previous life, um, done a lot of work with uh, startups and social entrepreneurship concepts. 
And I got a hold of this organization that was trying to figure out a way to deal with this issue and um, start giving them the ideas about changing social attitudes, creating a designated system for employment of people with disabilities, and having some tangible connections to community to demonstrate uh, people with disabilities and their talents. Um, so as I was giving these ideas away, they kept pulling me back in saying, this is great, this is great, this is great. Can you help us move this forward? Are you going to do this? I never thought I would be doing it as what I've been doing the last 30 years. I thought I was able, I was going to be able to just give the ideas and let other groups or other uh, individuals take it. But um, here I am today talking to you about I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. I guess kept, I kept building on the concepts that I had given them uh, 30 years ago. Now, was any of this born out of your belief that you have a disability? Everything that I, I've done has been um, about others and not necessarily about my own struggles that I've had. And I, I always have felt like my struggles are just my own. And I, and I have a problem-solving temperament, so I solve those and move on. But there are others that are less um, capable of, of solving uh, an issue due to whether it's depression, um, lack of uh, support within their community or family. And so I've always, all of my endeavors have always been looking at kind of a social benefit uh, model. And so it wasn't about me as much as trying to deal with changing systems to help others. Now, when I hear you talk about that, it makes me think of spiritual ideas. Are any of these ideas born from spirituality or spiritual exercise for you? Uh, I'm not smart enough to know that answer. So. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is, did you really just wake up in the morning and one day said, I'm just going to go help people? Or is there a philosophy behind it? Is there a, a notion of the structure of the universe that you want to fit into? I think it's intrinsic in people that have that concept um intrinsic in different ways of wanting to support and help i think it's as, as simple as myers-briggs or Jungian theory of temperament that we have those that believe in these are my marbles and don't take them away from me they're, they're mine and others that want to share those and and help others polish their marbles as well <laughs> so um i think that I, the spiritual side is in, in the way that most would think of it. No, I wouldn't suggest that. But I'm, again, I made the joke I'm not smart enough in, in that I don't know what I don't know. So I don't know what moves me in, in other than what I feel it's always been in me. Um, and, and I think there are other people like that, you know, especially what we call social entrepreneurs that still want to do business and, and, and make a living but feel like that has to be, there has to be another purpose to that. Um, and it just happened. I, I never thought disability was going to be my focus. If anything, I would have thought probably environment uh, since my undergrad was in biology. Well, and I think it's important for our listeners to know when you say things like helping polish the marbles, that you had a background as a publisher of Nath National Lampoon. I did. I, I published Lampoon for a few years. Um, which luckily the media never caught wind that I was doing both Ability Magazine, which is very politically correct, and National Lampoon, which is pushing over any sacred cow. Which is wonderful. You talked about the Myers-Briggs. 
Do you know what you are on the Myers-Briggs? Uh, I'm pretty close to X's across. I think I'm an ENTP. I would bet so, yeah. What about you? I'm an INTJ. Oh, really? I gotta go by. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> ENTPs are some of my favorite people on the planet. A lot of my friends are ENTPs. So you, you're Jane. Oh, huh, that's interesting. So, uh, but you're probably close. I would think. Oh yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not the kind of J that I, where where my judgment comes out is really organization of thought. Uh-huh. So when you talk about intuitive people and a J, oftentimes you're talking about people that have a hard time leaving things out on a bulletin board as an idea. They want to categorize it and they might shift that category around all the time, but it's really hard for them to just hold ideas in abeyance. Yeah, very good. And I experienced that. And so I've had to work really hard to over time just say, I don't need to judge that right this second. I'm just going to try to set it over here on the side. And part of the beauty of learning Myers-Briggs is you start to see the strengths of other people and realize your own weaknesses. And then as you develop, you can take on those strengths of other types and start to learn how to address something that might be more of an artisan skill, like an artisan, even though you're a rationalist. And then you can use your strength as a rationalist to really dissect things intellectually. But it doesn't mean that um, you're stuck or trapped the way that sometimes people will use the Myers-Briggs to try to pigeonhole people. I don't think that's really the appropriate notion. No, I I think the people that that kind of drop people into a box like that are not understanding the benefits just as you're describing them of, um, you know, knowing, um, and I, I try to remember it constantly. And, and when I get frustrated at people doing things that actually can even harm them, but I have to understand that they're sensories, that they're locked into the traditional way of doing things and change is very difficult for them. And, and actually that's part of why I created part of the nonprofit in community service is that I know that if people experience something that are sensory, they can change fairly quickly in, in their views of something. But if they don't have that experiential part rather than the abstract part, then it's very difficult for them to change because they don't like change. So um, so one of the programs, the, the, the Hallmark program that we created was with Habitat for Humanity. And we would um, we would do these around around the country. The first project was it's called the ability house and i partnered with millard fuller who started habitat for humanity and we built a the first house in birmingham alabama for a vietnam vet that used a wheelchair um but we so it's habitat all volunteer based so we we would set up where we bring volunteers with disabilities to build the homes and we did the first one in birmingham 250 volunteers with all types of disabilities came out first-time volunteers, and we did a blitz build and built the house in seven days. And so from there, the model has morphed a little bit to you know, it's a 50-50 model, and that allows volunteers from corporations to come in side-by-side side with some volunteers in the community with disabilities. Everyone's life changes, new awareness. on. Uh, there was one, art, one person we videoed talking about they'll never use the word disability again um, after experiencing a specific home was built in Maryland in Baltimore, and almost all the volunteers that came out were blind. It's experiential for those centuries, for those people that didn't that are listening in, going, "What are we listening to?" <laughs> so, so one of the things that you're making me think of is when I was a kid. You know, I grew up with a father who is a 
uh, an ex recon marine special forces on the Myers Briggs. He's a ESTP. Just to give you a sense of those of you that know Myers Briggs, and in this case, sounds like you do really well. So when I was growing up, and with as an INTJ, growing up with an ESTP father, so often he would look at me and say things like he thought I was totally disabled, right? Because I was living in a cloud of ideas, and he had his feet so firmly planted on the ground. But I remember that growing up, just thinking like. God, you know, I don't feel like I'm disabled, but this guy treats me like I'm totally disabled. And my dad and I have a great relationship now, and we've talked about this many times, and there's no, like, bad blood at this point. But did you have anybody like that when you were growing up that, that made you feel disabled, even though clearly you're a very capable guy who's able to solve all sorts of problems? One of the things that we try to do is bring out an awareness. Um, and an example is that we have people with disabilities building a home very tangible some of these people never even picked up a hammer let alone can pick up a hammer we give them other projects if they can't grab something and we just we figure things out as we go on these projects so the word disability um is is full of minefields just that word alone the the idea that when we go to a habitat affiliate and we say here's what we're going to do they're they think just as the language you just used about you feel like they're, you're disabled. A lot of them are centuries. And what the centuries will think is, wait a minute, I just, a friend of mine just fell off the roof and now he's disabled. What do you mean to come back to work workforce and into a workplace and build something if they have a disability? It's a very, it, it's, the word is, is again, just too broad and it means too much to too many people. It typically means it doesn't work. We're here to say, that is just one aspect of one's person's uh, reality of that something might not be functioning the way, quote, the norm, but it doesn't mean the person themselves can't function and look. So we always focus on ability. So everything we have in our collection of sorts is ability. So it's ability magazine, ability jobs, the ability job fair and ability core. Um, they're all relating to the person's individual ability. And disability is just a part of that life experience, part of the fabric of, of, of their lives, and actually the fabric of all their lives, because eventually we all experience a disability in our own lifetime, they say an average of 13 years, because of age. So some people are born with a disability, some people die instantly without any disability because they might be hit by a truck or something. But the reality is that because of age, we, we die, our cells are falling apart as we speak. I feel like I'm getting older anyway as I'm talking to you. As we, it's a joke. Um, so as we go down the bell-shaped curve of life, um, going, you know, he's over the hill, she's over the hill, we start to fall apart more rapidly. Hearing goes, osteoporosis, cancer, all the things that eventually put our bodies into the ground. So there's disability both in the beginning as babies, we're <laughs> totally dependent on others, etc. And then we move forward to what we focus on are people's ability, especially during the working age area of our lives, change socialization, etc. So when you say do you felt like disability, I know what you're saying. It's not like I don't get it, but we try not to use that word in such a way. We actually have a program called it to turn off um, that talks about programmers and different people that use the word disabled, meaning 
uh, meaning to turn something off or it doesn't work, rather than using other language. The word disabled doesn't fit with what our mission and, and our change of attitudes around that. Does that make sense? They wrong by that? Oh, absolutely. So what what's the language that you would encourage people to adopt when describing in a non-woken conversation I might call disabled? <laughs> so I got to tell you, so this guidelines the terminology around disabilities. Okay, so you, you say people first, a person with, and, and there's a kind of a new movement out there now called disability pride, and they're actually saying, I'm proud to have a disability. Some factions of disability movement b- believe in that, um, that concept and others are saying, well, if I have a disability that's progressive and it's killing me, I don't know if I'm actually that proud of it. So there's this, you know, there's a movement around here. It's all about civil rights and uh, social change and awareness and the celebration of the ADA of 30 years of the Americans Disabilities Act. So I'm invited by the, the U.S. Embassy and NYU to go speak uh, in Abu Dhabi uh, last year. And along with me is a young woman from Huffington Post. And we both are giving these, we give a three-day workshop to the international media on how to deal with disabilities and storytelling and, and language and guidelines and terminology, you know, et cetera. You know, is he wheelchair bound or does he use a wheelchair? All these things. And um, she's a little bit more toward the I'm disabled and proud, and I'm doing the old school first-and-first concept. And at the end of both of us doing our thing, they tell us that the United Arab Emirates does not use the word disability <laughs> and nobody told us. <laughs> so here we're trying to help them with language and they've changed it. As of that year, it's all people of determination. People of determination. Yeah. So they had their meetings and they just didn't like the word disability. It's like, I don't like it. Um, and they came up with that, you know, so. How do you like that? I mean, you sound like a person of determination. <laughs> Uh, it, it's just really tough. Um, you know, I actually wouldn't have mind the word handicap. I wasn't around at the time. And now it sounds bad for me to even say it out loud because we're so, it's like using the R word. You know, you just don't want to say the word retarded because everybody knows now not to say that. And it's great that it was the N word. You know, we kind of get programmed into that's a negative word. But I, I don't mind that where that word handicap came from is giving an equal playing field, like in horse races, and you give a handicap, you that horse is this, or, or in golf or other uh, programs where it just means equal playing field. But apparently that got really negative before I was around in this, in this area, because some people started to suggest that handicap means hand and cap, and that means you are begging, which I never found the resources on that. But the people that were coming into power as the uh, before the eighty came about, they decided to use the word disability. Which, if I was there, I would have been voting not to use that word. But it is now; it's part of everything. Um, it's a word that's being used both for for what we do and also used for not functioning. So it's a very frustrating um, concept. So it's not easy for me to give you an easy. Here it is. This just keep using this, but for me, it's person first language. If you can, um, and some people again, like disability pride, will say I'm disabled and proud. You have an incredible amount of patience around these topics. No, I was going to be a doctor, but then they took it away from me. Did you go to medical school? No, it was it was a it was a patience joke. 
so good. Oh my gosh. All right. So you have the patience to deal with all of this nuance. Well, where does that come from? Um, have you always been that patient? Have you always had this much perseverance? Well, I, gosh, I wish I was more patient. I wish I, there was a person named Justin Dart, who's one of the fathers of the ADA, Americans Disability Act. And everything he was talking about in every way he, he talked to people. And I looked at his patients um, and he was always talking about love and working together. I, I just don't have that yet. And I want to be there. I don't, I just don't have that. Thank you for saying that, by the way, but I have a lot of, work to do still I, I get frustrated how we don't all work together and how we there's silos all over the place within this area of disability because of funding sources for these different larger nonprofits or even small nonprofits they they hold tight to their control of their sponsors in such a way that they forget that they should be branching out helping bridge those gaps and those silos and um, some of them are starting to work together a little bit more but if if all of the nonprofits dealing with disability issues came together, it would be such a powerhouse. Literally, it's the largest minority in the country, and it's the only minority we might all join at any moment in time hmm. because of the illness or accident. It's an incredible force if it was, if it really was one one voice, but it's not. What holds it back from being one voice? I think it's the concern about if they got too close that maybe a, a funder uh, would move over and start funding another one money is is such a problem with nonprofits they it's their lifeblood they can't move yeah they can't do anything without it so they're too gun shy to do some more extreme things that might cause a lack of resources financial resources so you think because they're competing for resources then they don't feel free to work together that's my view of it i don't I, I don't know why, why else they wouldn't. So one of the ways that I um, have determined whether or not somebody on the Myers-Briggs is an intuitive thinker, an NT, is I ask them, how many times a day do you say to yourself something along the lines, and usually this would involve the F word, but I'm going to forego it in this, but just imagine. It would, I would say, how many times a day do you say something to yourself along the lines of, you've got to be kidding me? Because I hear you, I hear you saying, in a really patient voice, "You've got to be kidding me." Do you feel that way? Like because you you see the solution, you can see the answer right in front of you, and yet so, for some reason, other people are unwilling to band together and do the solution that you can clearly see. I've been in this in these trenches for so long that even though I see it sometimes on a daily basis. I guess I'm saying that without saying it. <laughs> just... No, no, I can hear it. I can hear it. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I remember when I when I first started the magazine, I had this back section called the Yellow Pages. We put all of these uh, resources, but nothing on the scale of what we were doing. Ours was um, going on the newsstand. Time Warner distributed us. We had celebrities on the cover. We went into this. In, in a marketing approach and that anybody on the, looking at the newsstand would see an image of a celebrity and pick it up. And the, the idea was grab that magazine with that celebrity and start reading it before they know it. Like, wow, there's a lot of stuff here about disabilities. 
And so it was, it was a, it was our way of you know, reaching it in our audience. Cause our, when people say what's the demographics of the magazine, I would typically say it's, we focus on only two groups. And so we only focus on people with disabilities and people without disabilities. Do you have laugh tracks? Can you hit a laugh track? <laughs> I've got one right here. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is we wanted to actually reach more people without disabilities to change their attitude. So that's where the celebrities came in. So in the yellow pages, we literally put other entities that would typically think we're competing with them. And I would meet them. I would meet a publisher or something. They said, they say, why'd you do that? And I said, well, aren't we all in this together? Aren't we trying to change that? Yeah, but <laughs> I just couldn't figure out why I would open the door and, and give them free marketing, free exposure, free advertising. They just couldn't figure that one out. <laughs> Well, see, it helps me understand how you can be publishing Ability Magazine on one hand and National Lampoon on the other, because you need an outlet for both sides of your personality. It it actually was a very interesting time in my life. Um, the media never picked up on what, what was happening, which is really good. But the there was a time we had um, put together the cover story of Lampoon was going to, uh, was going to be Scandal 101. And it was a a professor teaching these people that at the time were all in scandals from um, Michael Jackson to Beavis and Butthead to uh, should it be the names of the different people um, that were there. But the teacher was going to be Ted Kennedy after Chapman quit. (laughs) And so the artist we had at the time when he does these great pieces of art, these these, uh, illustrations, he has this tendency to elongate the face. And so when I looked at Ted Kennedy's face, it didn't look like Ted Kennedy. He's got these jowls. And so I said, that's not working. So we put um, Howard Stern in place. You said, that's Bill Clinton. <laughs> the week that that issue hit this newsstand, I'm invited because of Ability Magazine to this very uh, exclusive private dinner event. And I went into this fancy restaurant in Beverly Hills and being introduced, I'm, I'm shaking hands with Ted Kennedy. And I'm thinking, looking at him, saying, you know, I'm thinking, boy, if you only knew, <laughs> we, we, we almost had you on the cover because they don't know that I was publishing that poem. But, and the only reason I took him off the cover was because of the artist. Um, so it was one of those weird, surreal lives that people don't know I was living <laughs> And things that were happening. A double life. Does National Lampoon still exist? There's been a couple of things that they've attempted after I left, but I don't know. I don't know what's going on with it. I haven't followed. Um, they just had some major problems. And I left because of the person that we had to deal with. Um, you, you know the history of Lampoon? It came from Harvard. I, I don't. Can you give me the brief, the real brief? It was originally Harvard Lampoon, and then Maddie Simmons... Um, got the rights to do National Lampoon from some of those characters back in the day, became Saturday Night Live. So there's this really great history of Lampoon. I come in just at the end of that to where uh, a person named Jim Jamiro takes it over, buys the, the, the master license and, and with the movies, etc. And they still had the magazine. And the magazine had floundered. They didn't know what to do with it. It got pretty raunchy with their humor. And when I took it over, 
I brought back some of the original writers, got rid of all the raunchiness, and um, it, it was just a challenge. But Jim DeMiro, um, I think, had some struggles, some mental health struggles, actually, and um, just kept blowing up the company, basically. And I was the last one person standing, and eventually I got to you know, let you have it and close it up. And, and I don't, I didn't follow it after that. It was, it was all downhill. What do you think the role of humor is in this these days that feel so serious? That's why I took over Lampoon. It wasn't because of the wonderful history, which I, you know, that is, it's because I believe in humor and therapy. From the beginning of Ability Magazine, we've had a humor therapy section. Jeff Charlebois has been with us for, I think, 19 years, who's been writing most of those sections of those um, pieces. And um, he's a sit-down comic. He, he's just an incredible, funny person on stage or in writing. So I think that the aspect of, of bringing humor at any time, but even more so when we have issues like what's happening in the world today on this surreal, you know, staying stay in and it's affecting people in different ways as you know about temperament i mean there's going to be those people that are that have to get out for their own sanity if you don't have some humor depending on again each temperament has a different way of looking at humor but i think the core concept of human therapy is, is solid that it's, it's a benefit for all it's a, almost like benefit of exercise how would you measure the success that you've achieved inside of this ability universe uh, I use the metric system. Well, that's a good one. I mean, at least it's in tens. How do I measure success uh, of the things that we've done? Yeah, I mean, how do, when you look back and you say, look at all we've accomplished, which things would you say, wow, we've really been successful? And which things would you say, man, we haven't really achieved anything? I, I guess I have the problem with the word success because I think it's, it's a – it's, to me, it's always it's a dynamic. It's, there's always more, but I hope in my life that that it will continue on when I'm gone. That it just keeps growing. Um, but we are we know that we're um, making inroads. We we built the first job board for people with disabilities um, in 1995. The first newsstand magazine. Oh, actually, two years ago now we were off the newsstand and not completely. Digital, you know, the kind of magazine that flips in form. What year did you get on the newsstand? I think we were actually on the newsstand in 91 or 92, even though we started in 98. It took us a while to get uh, outside of the local market. It's there was a, There's a whole bunch of fun stories around people saying that a magazine dealing with disability should not be in a food store. So we fought that, you know, to get into a national chain, get a national distributor, which turned out to be Time Warner. Um, so it's been... Um, been a uphill battle. But before 1991, is it true there was no magazine focused on disabilities? No, there were a couple, but they weren't newsstand per se. One was called Mainstream Magazine. Mm -hmm. You know, they existed, but their celebrities, that, I'm sorry, the people on the cover stories, which they would consider celebrities, might be someone handcuffing themselves to a, a retail store that wasn't accessible. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So... But that's not what we were mm -hmm. doing, so that's why we put them in Power Magazine to give them more uh, awareness that, that that stuff exists. It just wasn't where the direction I was taking was for mainstream, where they were might be called the trade publication of sorts. Yeah, no, I get that. 
So, so you would say when you look back, you say like one of the successes. I mean, obviously, like what you're saying is true. Success builds on success, and where's the 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 goalposts keep getting moved on some right. level. At least we could chalk up one win, and you can say we brought national attention through a national magazine to this issue. You nationally poo? No, yeah, we we <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we did that. We we created the uh, you know again the first job board, which is the largest. We have many many people hurt, their lives have changed because they've got employment through that job board. Every, actually, everyone we have on our team came from our own systems. Uh, we just hired uh, a new IT person from the job fair. Um, we, I think actually the last three people we brought on are from one of our career fairs. Do you know about the career fair? Did I tell you about what that is? Yeah, you haven't told me about what it is. I know some about it. Why don't you tell us? Uh, well, thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> so the, the, um, it's the first uh, accessible online career fair. We built it from the beginning of what happens if someone comes on that has a disability, how can they navigate an online career fair if they're blind or if they're deaf or use other uh, apps to be able to access the web. So um, one of the coolest things, it's face-to-face video, um, it has speech to text and a push chat and audio. But um, if somebody happens to be deaf, they navigate, they click another button and a third video appears, and it's it's the live sign language interpreter. It's been a great success, and because of COVID and social distancing, we are seeing incredible growth in that that uh, platform. Um, and we've had clients ranging from the IRS to Google to Facebook to the Secret Service to Wells Fargo and Ed. I mean, it's it's just amazing number of companies that are using the system. So you think that work from home COVID world might be a huge advantage for people with disabilities getting jobs they otherwise might have not might not have gotten? Um, that's an interesting question. There is always a bit of depending on the type of pers- type of disability, there could easily be some problem with transportation, um, whether it's extra cost or extra time. Um, and so having uh, your office as your computer screen or your ability to communicate with whether it's the recruiter or working at home, I think has a bit of an advantage to everyone. Now, you do lose some of that socialization, which some people, again, as we talked about Myers-Briggs, uh, might need more than others. But with, with what's happening with COVID and the platforms we've developed, I think there is oddly a, an advantage here. Um, for um, this time and space. Where do we go from here? Like You've been doing this for over 30 years. I was what thinking you... of some island or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Bahamas is closed to Americans. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so that. <laughs> I think the only, play, the only island we're allowed to go to of substance is Hawaii. I, I don't think I could even get into New Jersey now. Not if you're, not if you're from the <laughs> South. I don't think they let you in. So you've been doing this over 30 years. What would you hope to see 30 years from now? What would be the things that you would hope that society has changed about their approach to uh, the disabled community? I've said this from the beginning. I would love to have everything we built not needed. (laughs) It's like 
what? right where it was just totally superfluous yeah. because there was so it's, much integration like, yeah. it, i didn't think i would never have imagined that this would have gone on 30 years to begin with at the beginning because i didn't think i was going to be part of it um but let alone there's still the same challenges even as you were using the term disability you thought people would learn more quickly you thought we'll make a magazine we'll teach these people about the realities of things and they'll get it and then the magazine might be superfluous absolutely I, i've always thought that awareness um depending on again temperament takes some time and and, and as you know it's because it sounds like you know my very lot but seventy uh, percent of the population are sensory so i know that was a huge uphill battle dealing with attitudinal shift um but it's it's uh, it's just always amazing how integrated we are with these unconscious biases that exist these implicit biases of of of, of everything from what we talked about with you and the language and, and looking at this and how it just disrupts the concept of um bringing people with disabilities of all sorts into true integrated society inclusive society inclusive workforce um we're actually the latest program we're working with is called ability e for ability entertainment ability e.com and we're now building a massive pipeline of for talented performers actors with disabilities to put their um system their uh, profiles online and so casting and studios can access that database um so that teeth so film and television and any media can start having more authentic people with disabilities in what we see every day in their lives and that will change society's views as, as we start seeing this and you can see that other diversity movements have affected um it been affected in that way and so disabilities is the last frontier in this area so we've met with all the major studios and demonstrated what we're doing and um the way that came about is uh Netflix last year came to us and asked for some support and said we're we're producing this show we want to authentically have two of our leads have disabilities they found the young boy and they're now looking for a 9 to 13 year old uh girl with um that authentically uses a wheelchair that spoke english and they went through the normal channels um and they were only find 10 auditions so we used ability magazine and ability jobs and put that call out we sent them close to 500 mm. auditions so from that um horse one of them was cast her name is Sophie Kim and with that her her life has changed her family's life has changed and now young people watching that show that may look like her using that chair etc can see somebody that that represents them but other people see and say well she's happens to use a power chair but she's just this wonderful young talented person and so we're pushing that hard to get uh people from around the world to put their profiles up and it's it's um it's really fun to see how it's growing and that will change the way casting typically casting is said yeah we'd love to cast we don't know where to find talented people so so we're going to change that you probably remember the television show in the late 80s early 90s life goes on Jerry Jewell right how did that affect you when you know having the character Corky i, I believe he had down syndrome oh Corky yeah right Corky, yeah. did he how did how did that affect what you guys were were doing 
Did it have a positive effect, a negative effect? Um, well, I never liked the guy to begin with. <laughs> yeah. um, no, Cookie's, Cookie's a great guy. How it affected us, I, I, we're kind of working at a different level than than like knowing that kind of thing. But without Corky and Norman Lear uh, had the show with Jerry Jewell, who's of um, just CP, he was the, like the major force behind bringing the first real beyond Corky, um, Jerry Jewell being the rock star of person with a disability on, on a major sitcom. You're talking um, about the facts of life. Yes, yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, I, I, Corky's a character. He's got a band. I mean, he's just, just a wonderful guy. Jerry has been a friend for I don't know how many years. We actually brought her into the United Nations one time when we were having a panel discussion there. There's just um, there's a lot of great people who have done, been doing a lot of great work. It's a movement for whatever reason has, has not moved as much uh, the needle as we would like, at least as I would like. And then you have um, Breaking Bad with R.J. Mitty, also at CP. Um, do you remember that character? Yeah, of course. Fantastic. Yeah. All of the characters, it's only 2% of people with disabilities um, betrayed on TV. And out of that 2%, some of those aren't people with disabilities that are, that are at, playing that part. So um, you have that other thing about authentic representation. Part of what Ability E will be doing is also having a big enough casting talent pool there that they can start hiring talent with disabilities for other parts that are not called out to have a disability. Robert David Hall, who played CS on CSI, he was a coroner. People didn't even notice he had a cocaine, but he was dual amputee. He didn't have legs. doesn't have legs still. <laughs> But he would have these these roles where he'd be a judge. He doesn't have to, as a judge, you're sitting on the bench and doing your thing. And so there are, there are plenty of roles out there that if, you, if the writers don't feel comfortable with somebody using a chair in the scene, you can put an actor in there that might not have to. But what we want to do is get them used to, if somebody happens to be in the scene that has a disability, disability that they don't have to call attention to it or say, no, how come that person's blind right there? What's the backstory? We want to get it to the point that it's just part of society. Because your experience is that people with disabilities don't want that called out. They just want to be treated the same as everyone who doesn't have a disability. I, I always try to look at, um, you know, my, my disabilities are hidden. So, it's it's not an issue of how people project to me other other than my poor humor. Um, the if you I always look at it for yourself, for example, if all of a sudden you're using a wheelchair, how people would be looking at you? You would still want to say, "Hey, this is me. I'm just just a different form of mobility. It's you know don't don't treat me different. It's, I still have the same capabilities as prior to." not using the sneakers to walk on. I'm using these wheels to roll around on. So, you know, um, interesting, interesting story on that though. You know, about four years ago, I had a really bad ankle injury and I had to use a cane for like four or five months. And it was fascinating to me how much kinder people were everywhere I went. They noticed the cane. They noticed that I was, you know, struggling and they went out of their way to help me in any way they could. I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. Is that why you still use a cane? 
I, I've never given it up. I mean, after I experienced that. No. <laughs> I had a friend that I used to travel with around the world, and um, oh my gosh, he was so sick of, of that mentality of, of that um, extra kindness that he was getting on a bus somewhere, I don't know where we were, and the bus was not accessible. And he's, he's kind of a macho guy, so he gets his wheelchair and, and strips it apart and throws it up, up on the stairs of the bus. And then he muscles himself up the stairs. Um, and somebody that was in the bus, wanting to be a nice person, absolutely wanting to help, rushes behind him and grabs his shoulders. And the guy came so close, my friend came so close to punching the guy out. Um, he just, he had such a chip on his shoulder of not people not asking, people just taking, thinking you need help, and he didn't feel like he needed help anywhere. And uh, and so you have that mentality of, oh, poor you, and that, that's another problem within within um, our society of, 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 you know, we always say ask first, you know, not just take it upon yourself. So the what you described as, as extra kindness, like I experienced the extra kindness as incredibly encouraging about the love of humanity. If you had it your whole life, you you would start to say, oh, "I've had enough." And you you're, you're experiencing a short window of time, and, and you're right, and that's the wonderful part. It is there are good people and with good hearts. I get that, but for that purpose, just because you uh, you're perceived. To, to be in need. One of the reasons we do the volunteer program, it's um, it's it's better to give than receive. We don't let people with disabilities give. And so that, that component of feeling good, because they want to feel good too, because they're going to help you. And, I, and that's all fine. But it's because of that perception that also causes problems in employment. So, oh, I really like to give him a job, but, you know, he's got a disability. <laughs> Or this this may cost the company some money, so let's not go there. I'll just go with the person I feel more comfortable with. And if you felt comfortable with that person and you really saw that there might be some some help that's needed, then you say, hey, do you need some help? Then that's fine. And you move on. It's not a pity approach. Am I beating you up? Got it. So Okay. Okay. No, I'm loving this. This is this is fascinating to me because I think it's I'm by nature someone who loves distinction. I love to notice all the differences of all kinds of people. I am totally comfortable with disabilities and abilities and struggles and uh, virtues and vices and trying to, but yet I want to categorize them and catalog them and observe them. It's, it's kind of my nature. It's the J in you. Yeah. And it's, I'm an, I'm an observer by nature in life. Um, The part that's interesting to me is that I feel most at home if we can be really, really candid. And so what I hear you saying is that people with disabilities want you to say, hey, I see your disability. Would you like me to help you? Or do you got it by yourself? Yeah. Yeah, just ask. Yeah. So so it, it, it just brings it out into the open, puts it on the table, and everybody then communicates what their needs are the way we do with our emotions. And so we then do that with our physical abilities. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a little bit of a pushback in my, my mind as you're saying that as, a, as if I'm categorizing, categorizing all people with disabilities thinking the same way. And, and of course, we know that's not the case. And, and temperament falls into all of these things. 
and, and other issues in life and diversity within disability. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of nuances and layers in this. It's, it's one of the reasons that kept me involved all these 30 years, three decades, my gosh, um, is I love a challenge. And this challenge is ever going. It's, it's just so wrought with, with issues and, and again, nuances. And it's, it, it's when you get into it and start looking around and you see all the aspects from issues of technology, issues of socialization, transportation, it's employment and travel. We have something we're working with a group in Spain about accessible tourism. Uh, it's just, it's just mind blowing of all the things that are, are out there still needing major change in efforts to, um, increase the people's happiness in life. Chet, we're running out of time. Okay. Bye. But it- <laughs> <laughs> It's, it, it, it took me an hour to get your humor, but now I'm right there with you. If people if people found the things that you were talking about to be compelling and they wanted to know more about Ability Magazine, all the other things that you're working on, what are the best places for them to go to find you on the web? Well, um, I was going to give them my home address. That's fine, but too. You can give I'm it right social, here. I'm just, so, you know, I'm Cell phone text. numbers work well. People love to text. <laughs> um. Yeah, so abilitymagazine.com, abilityjobs.com, then abilityjobfair.org, and abilitycore.org. And abilitycore is spelled like the Peace Corps, C-O-R-P-S, which is a French word. That's why the S is on. <laughs> Chet, your work is the work of a stalwart. It's amazing, your perseverance. I, I never got to ask um, you any questions. Tell me, tell me about the studio real quick. <laughs> I'd be glad to. the The studio is in South Atlanta, uh, where I we're we're on Moreland Avenue, about fifteen minutes south of Inman Park. It sits on a hundred acres. We're eight hundred fifty thousand square feet under roof. Um, the facility is purpose built to accommodate the needs of the biggest productions and movies, television. So some of the things that have been made here that you would know um, might be Venom. Godzilla, hmm. uh, the Jumanji movies, Ju- wow. Jungle Cruise, which was with The Rock, that was supposed to be the biggest movie of 2020, but got delayed because of COVID. Um, HBO made an a incredible new show that's coming out soon called Lovecraft Country. So, you know, it's, it's a movie and television studio at the kind of highest level uh, internationally in the English-speaking world. And how does that relate to the podcast? Well, mostly it relates to thinking about how entertainment fits in with the rest of society. Just like when you were talking about um, having people with disabilities on television shows and in movies and, and what an impact television movies have on, have on society's norms and the, and the general zeitgeist about mm-hmm. what people think um, is the foundation of society. And, 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 and really, specifically, that relates to the sensory people that you were referring to that are 70% or 80%, whatever the number is, but let's call it 70% of society. Mm-hmm. 70% of society is waiting to see something normalized before they accept it. Right. And I love so, the fact that you know this stuff, by the way. Yeah, well, it's 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 part of understanding how human beings make decisions, and you can't be an entrepreneur unless you understand both how your customers make decisions, how your capital partners make decisions, how 
uh, a government makes decisions. I, you know, my background is almost all real estate, and mm-hmm. real estate is all about understanding how decisions are made by your the, the customers that are buying products at a particular location, or the customers that are renting apartments, or the customers that are leasing apartments, or the government that's approving what you can build. And and so understanding people is essential to the success of my business. Mm-hmm. Well, all business really. All business, completely. Agree. Are you doing anything uh, in Los Angeles? We are actually, um, you know, we are in the process of building a, a a huge studio in LA. It's 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 top secret where the location is, but it's a massive facility. It's about a, a million two square feet. It's a two hundred fifty million dollar build, and it's going to be um, something that nobody's built in LA for over fifty years. And what's your part of this? Um, well, I'm the owner, and, oh, and I'm the so with I'm the, the two hundred fifty million. That's not usual a, person. No, no, I have I have a capital partner uh, oh. that's actually based in Los Angeles, uh-huh. and um, they're my capital partner for all our global expansion. We've got four hundred million in development in London, where we're building over fifty sound stages, um, almost a million square feet of sound stages, about two point two million square feet of total space. Uh, we're tripling our size here in Atlanta. That's another $150 million worth of build-out. And then we've got this massive facility in L.A. that we're working on. Would you compete against Tyler's place in Georgia? We do, but you know, in a, in a slightly different way. You know, Tyler's place primarily is for Tyler to make movies. Oh. Right? And then a secondary use of his facilities for other people to come and make movies. Whereas our facility, our primary use is for Disney and Sony and Warner brothers and all these other guys to come and make movies We're we're really like the outsourced manufacturing of film, the way that China has been a manufacturing base for American products for decades. Do you, did you know, um, Millard Fuller? I didn't. Cause he was in America's Georgia down, you know, a bit of a way from Atlanta, but, um, and then, um, Habitat moved to Atlanta, I think. Um, I think, you know, I know his name through, I believe, the Carter Center. Yeah. So did you get to know um, the Carters? Well, I've met President Carter and his wife, but I don't know them. You know, we're, mm. they're, not, they're not friends. We don't text. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he's been an avid supporter of uh, Habitat from the beginning. Avid. And then um, Rosalind, um She's been on the cover of the magazine before and dealing with mental health issues. They're incredible people. You yes. know, I, I just recently was invited to be on the board at the Carter Center. Oh, really nice. And I, you know, I'm just so impressed with everything that they've done over the years. It sounds like uh, you're a busy person. I'm trying to make the most of the time I have. Yeah, life is short. I'm sure you're thinking that as well. And it's so much you can do um, so little time. Well, every day is a gift. There's no doubt. I mean, none of us know the days that we have. Um, and as you said, I thought it was really profoundly earlier, you know, having a disability is something all of us could encounter at any moment in our life from a car accident to a disease to who knows what could put us in a wheelchair or make us blind or uh, make it to where we were, were deaf or we had a learning disability. Suddenly we could lose our cognitive functioning. Um, and all of that is a blink of an yeah, eye. I, I, I don't want to go into, I know we have to cut this short, but uh, at some point maybe we could talk about my experience with Christopher Reeve and how he transitioned from after the accident um, from uh, from his, his state of mind. And I, I, I got to meet him up at his house after 
uh, after the accident and how um, how he came to become actual advocate, which in the beginning, people with disabilities were so upset with him because he was, they, they felt like he was bringing everything back in tens of years because he kept talking about wanting to walk again to be a whole person, which um, you don't need to walk to be a whole person. Mm. But I, I helped him with that transition, um, but it took a while. And once he realized um, that I, it's a long story, so I won't go into it now. Well, no, I mean, I, I'd love to do an entire podcast just on that. I think that's a really fascinating. Yeah, it's a really interesting storyline. Um, and, and sad to say that a couple of the people that I put together with that particular interview have passed away, but their lives are incredible just to talk about them, of what they've done, and, and both and Dana as well. And, can we do that next week? I'd love to explore that and and do sure right, where sure. we yeah good. Let's do it next week. We'll we'll dive in and we'll do an entire podcast on Christopher Reeve and his story and his transition from a person yeah. that would clearly be perceived as Superman to uh, a person who look at the irony of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, great. All right, Chad. Thanks for taking the time. Let's let's do it next week on Christopher Reeve. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I can't wait till next week. This is Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Putting an exclamation point on the end of each podcast, I share inspirational sayings that I write and share on Instagram. Sometimes you lose, but the courage to go for what you truly desire is worth it, no matter the outcome. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.